0: Amen. Thank you all for joining us today here at Encounter Church. We are all blessed to have every single one of you here. Um, As I mentioned last week, it's been a year since we launched Encounter Church, and it has been an eventful, interesting year. and And we are so blessed to be able to partner with every single one of you those who are connecting online, and those who are not here today, um, but have been a part in supporting Encounter Church. We're so thankful for your support, your love, your prayers, and I want to be frank, honest with all of you. It hasn't been the easiest year with COVID and starting a church and just having all these changes with school, work. Um, it's been a lot. It's, it's, uh, it's been challenging. Uh, But together we have survived. We have made it. And that's something to celebrate. But I look at the future with optimism. I don't believe that Encounter Church will be a church that just survives. I believe that Encounter Church will be known as a church that thrives. Because God is building his church through all of us. But I am so thankful for every single one of you for taking a leap of faith. Uh, we are moving slowly, but surely, and we have made progress. Uh, I've seen profound growth in all of you, and I am excited to see what Jesus will continue to do in all of your lives. Um, during the month of August, as we have been saying, we'll be just hearing a pastoral heart as I have Sought the face of God and interacted with other brothers and sisters. And today, I feel that the Spirit have has led me to talk about the emotional health of a church. Before we begin, if you have your Bibles, I'm just going to read one verse: Matthew eleven thirty. Matthew eleven thirty. You could just listen along. It is a, a popular verse, but it's a powerful, powerful verse. Matthew eleven thirty. And it says this, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In another translation, uh, it says, and this is Jesus talking, he says, Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Freely and lightly. I hope that all of us could learn how to live freely and lightly. Let's all pray as we go into this message. Heavenly Father, Lord, you you know what every single person has gone through this week. And you've they've gone through a lot. I've gone through a lot with school and just finals and things like that and just going through life, and I know that everyone here goes through a lot with work, but I pray that in this moment their hearts may be open and that they may trust in you just as I will trust in you to speak to every single one of us, speak to our hearts, speak to our spiritual and emotional condition. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Our emotions are often overlooked in Christendom, in Christianity. Generally, the traditional way of seeing things is this way. And I'll just write, traditional. Traditional. This is usually the way that we live Christianity. Um, You you meet Jesus, which is awesome. You should meet Jesus. You fall in love with him, and you believe in him. Then you you realize that Jesus wants you to live in community, so you join the church. And what typically happens is that you start attending church slowly. Then you have things to check off. You have like a a to-do list, like am I being part of the church by connecting with people? Do I serve? Do I give? And hopefully through this, through this process, you, you think you will make an impact. And, and you do make an impact. But this is the traditional way of doing it. And I wrote traditionally. Uh, the traditional way of doing it. I want us to look at a better way of making an impact. And it's a transformative way. Rather than the traditional way transformative in the transformative way you, you still meet Jesus that is important meeting Jesus Super important and if you want to learn more about Jesus, I encourage you to read your Bible to maybe even watch the Chosen series. It's a great free series online um, and you could also we could also get some tea I've been trying tea and we could talk about Jesus, Uh, trying to get a little taste iced tea. Um, So if you want to do that, we could do that too or whatever. We could always talk about Jesus, but it's important that you know Jesus. You also need to still be part of community. So those things are the same, but here is the difference. The change is here. The difference is when we deal with things in a deeper manner. We deal with things that are not so visible. This is an iceberg. Uh, you could see what's visible, but we need to deal with the invisible, with our emotions. I, I did not come up with this model. I borrowed it from a pastor from New York. And, and then after we deal with our emotional health, with our relationships, then we can make a huge difference Impact. So many jump from attending church, meeting with Jesus, to making an impact without dealing with the faults within us. We just hide our emotions or slide it under the rug. And sure, if we do that, we we could still make an impact. But so many times our, um, our messy emotions get in the way if we don't deal with them. And these emotions will limit us and they can bring us harm if they remain unchecked. Jesus wants us, as we read earlier, he wants us to live lightly and freely. However, if we don't deal with our emotions, we will be bound and feel the weight of our emotions. Well, yes, you'll be able to make an impact Your lack of emotional health will affect areas that matter, like your family, like your marriage, like your workplace, like your own well-being. Christian spirituality, without dealing with your emotions, can be deadly. It can hurt yourself. It, It can hurt the people around you. It can even hurt your relationship with God. Here's an interesting story from the pastor that I mentioned from New York. He shared this story. Two people visited his church. They wanted to talk to him. The pastor, he was exhausted, but he cared about the ministry, and he didn't want the visitors to think bad of him. Like, like what, what would the visitors think if the pastor said, I, I'm just so tired, I need, I need to go home. So the pastor invited them over to have lunch, invited the visitors over, and the pastor even took his wife with them, and they were there. And his wife was also tired, but she agreed because she wanted to be a good pastor's wife. They had lunch at the pastor's house. One of the visitors, John, began talking and talking and talking during lunch. The other visitors, John's wife, Susan, said nothing. And the pastor and his wife would often look at each other, give glances at each other, like, man, how much longer is John just going to keep on talking and talking and talking? But the pastor couldn't interrupt him. John was talking with such intensity about God, about life, about his new opportunities at work. And the pastor was just thinking, Oh, God, I, I, I want to be loving and kind, but how much is enough? He pretended to listen, but then he became angry. Then he became guilty about his anger. He wanted John and Susan to think of him and his wife as hospitable and gracious. But it was a lot, especially after a long day. Then the pastor and his wife had some time alone. John had to make a phone call, and Susan went to the restroom. The pastor's wife told the pastor, and the name of the pastor is Pete. She said, Pete, I can't believe you did this. I haven't seen you. The kids haven't seen you. And Pete, the pastor, just put his head down and slumped his shoulders hoping that this humility would evoke mercy, but it didn't. Susan and John returned to the kitchen table. John continued talking. The pastor hated sitting at that kitchen table. Then John said, I hope I'm not talking too much. Pete responded, the pastor responded saying, no, of course not. It's great having you here. Pete's wife stayed quiet Pete didn't want to look at his wife anymore. Another hour passed. Then the pastor's wife, whose name is Jerry, she, she blurted, I haven't heard from Faith in a while. Faith was their three-year-old daughter. John continued talking as if Jerry didn't say anything. Pete and Jerry, the, the pastor and the wife, exchanged glances again and again. And continued to pretend listening, occasionally stretching their necks to see if their dogs were around outside the room. Pete convinced himself, the pastor, he convinced himself that everything was fine. But Jerry began to look very upset. She was worried about faith. The house was too quiet. John, the visitor, he continued talking. Then finally, Jerry excused herself with an annoyed tone. I have to go and check on our daughter. She went to the basement, no faith. The bedrooms, no faith. The living and dining rooms, no faith. Frantically, Jerry went to Pete. Pete, I can't find her. She's not here. Then the horror gripped both of them. Then they thought then unthinkable. The pool. They had a three-foot-high pool in the backyard. They ran to the backyard and saw Faith in the middle of the pool, their three-year-old daughter, naked, barely standing on tiptoes with the water up to her chin, almost to her mouth. Somehow, Faith was able to make it in the pool and keep herself from drowning by standing on her tiptoes for who knows how long. If she wasn't on her tiptoes, Pete and Jerry would, would have been burying their daughter. Pete and Jerry were shaken up when this took place. For days, they were just in shock. But the sad truth is that nothing changed within Pete and Jerry. They did ministry as usual and suffered more pain and horrors. How could it be that the pastor and his wife could have been so negligent Now the pastor looks back and he is embarrassed at how disingenuous and immature he acted with the visitors, John and Susan, and how he acted with God and himself. John was not the problem. The visitor was not the problem. Pete, the pastor, was the problem. Externally, he appeared kind, gracious, and patient, but inwardly, below the surface he wasn't kind he wasn't gracious he wasn't patient all he wanted was to present a polished image of a good christian but he wasn't being sincere he was just thinking i hope i'm a good enough christian i hope that these couple this couple would like me i hope that they think that this this my wife and i are are okay are decent I hope that they would give a good report of us. The pastor admitted this. Pretending was safer than honesty and vulnerability. Pretending was safer than honesty and vulnerability. Pretending was safer than honesty and vulnerability. Maybe we like this traditional approach better because it doesn't deal with all of our junk. But it is harmful if we don't deal with the deep internal wounds and sin patterns. If, If you don't deal with your emotions, you will be stuck at an immature level of spirituality and emotional and emotional development. And you might end up hurting others. To be honest, it is very likely that you haven't dealt with your emotions. You're very, it's very likely that you are emotionally unhealthy. And it is very unlikely, sadly, that you grew up in a family that was not emotionally whole or mature. And maybe you have recognized this. And now that you, you believe that once you found Jesus, that, you know, your emotional junk has been completely dealt with. After all, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed and see the new has come. And certainly Christ immediately changes things. But we also know as we see the disciples of Christ, it takes time To grow as the person God has called us to be. I am still in a process. My family, my parents, they were the best and still are. But I know they come from emotional unhealthiness, which was inherited. And I inherited some unhealthy practices. But we need to deal with this type of stuff. I don't know what your story is, but identify where you need to grow. My family and I left the church when I was seven. We came back to it when I was 15, 16. And that's when I became a Christian by God's grace. I immediately wanted to follow Christ. And I let everyone know that I was a Christian. I prayed as much as I could pray. I read as much as I could read. I served as much as I could serve. I told about Jesus as much as I could. I attended all the events I could attend. I gave all I could give. I attended Bible college for a year, then went to Liberty for three, then my master's for another three. And I noticed that for the most part, my critical spirit, my emotions were rarely touched. I was passionate, bold, but I lacked understanding and compassion. I was somewhat arrogant. Fortunately, for the last three to two years, I've been focusing on my emotional health. There's still a lot of room to grow. But if I'm honest, for the most part in my Christian walk, my emotional health remained largely untouched. Despite all the Sunday school classes, all the small groups, all the Wednesday gatherings. In fact, my emotions seem to be more of a secular thing. Than a church slash spiritual thing. Things needed to change in my life. And we tell ourselves, you know, maybe maybe more Bible study will change it or more community events or more prayer or understanding the authority of Jesus or the name of Jesus or worship will change our emotions or helping the poor or hearing God's voice or understanding the gospel more. And while everything I just said should be part of our spiritual journey, there is still something missing. If we just focus on community life, on worship, we might just be adding layers to this iceberg rather than dealing with the internal, with our roots, with our emotions. We need to experience what Jesus said. We need to live freely. And lightly in every area. Be honest. Do you feel that way? Do you feel the easy yoke of Christ? The light burden of Christ? Or do you feel exhausted and in need of a break? We need to experience this freedom that Christ brings us in all of our areas, in every area of our lives. We are social, intellectual, spiritual, physical, emotional beings, and the gospel reaches every area. It's easy to see if you have socially developed or if you have physically developed. We could easily check that. But it's hard to see if we have developed emotionally because you could easily hide your emotions. You might think, since you could hide it, that it's not necessary to deal with your emotions. But it is. With the rest of our time together, I want us to explore the top 10 symptoms of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. The first symptom is using God to run from God. This is the Christian who hides in endless responsibilities to not deal with the emotional side of the soul. And he uses God to run away from God. Oh, you know, I have to do this God activity. You give this excuse so you don't spend time with family. You use this God activity. Oh, I have to go to practice so I don't have to deal with my own problems. This is when you use God to run away from him. And when this happens, you you might do God's work to satisfy yourself. You might pray about doing your own will instead of God's will. Demonstrating Christian behaviors is so important. You want to show show to everybody that you're a Christian because you want people to think well of you. You think about theological points so much so that you don't deal with your emotional issues. You use the Bible to judge and devalue others. You compete with others so that you exaggerate your accomplishments for God. You use Scripture to justify the sinful parts of your family relationships, uh, of your cultural values, and of national policies. But you don't use the Scriptures to help change your life. You hide behind God talk, trying to hide your inner cracks. You're selective with biblical truths you apply in your life. Here's an example of somebody who uses God to run away from God. There's this person, another person named John. John, he, I was just thinking about John. John uses God to validate his strong opinions on issues ranging from the appropriate length of woman's skirt in church to political candidates to gender roles to his inability to negotiate issues with fellow non-christian managers at works he does not listen to or check out the innumerable assumptions he makes about others he jumps to conclusions and sadly his friends and family and co-workers find him unsafe and condescending John then goes on to convince himself he is doing God's work by misapplying selected verses of scripture. Of course, that person hates me, he tells himself. All those who desire to be godly will suffer persecution. But honestly, this person, John, he he lacks emotional maturity. That's why he is suffering. And now he's using God to run away from God. He's using God to run away from dealing with his own junk. Here's another symptom of emotional unhealthiness. You ignore anger, you ignore sadness, and you ignore fear. It is a very common belief in the Christian world that we should avoid anger, sadness, and fear. So when we feel these emotions, we feel like something is wrong. Wrong, something is wrong within our spiritual life. Like if we're angry, then, then that means that we're dangerous or unloving. If we're sad, we feel maybe that we have lacked faith in the promises of God. And of course, we're not supposed to fear. God is with us. But if we grow up with this mentality that we can't feel any of these feelings, then we, we begin to believe that the, all of these feelings are unreliable and should not be trusted. While it is true that some Christians live in the extreme of following their emotions, their feelings in an unhealthy way, it is more common to see Christians who believe they do not have permission to admit their feelings or express them openly. It's hard to express feelings of fear, sadness, shame, anger, hurt, or even pain. But here's something to consider. How can we listen to what God is saying and evaluate what is going on inside when we cut ourselves from our emotions? To feel is to be human. To ignore our feelings is to ignore something of what it means to be an image bearer, to be a human. God gave us feelings. To cut them off is to cut off one of our senses. It's like saying, "My, my sense of taste tasted something, so I'm going to cut off my tongue. So you cut it off." That, that's what happens when you don't allow yourself to be sad. As Christians, we we usually follow a model, you know, we're just going to live by facts, what God says, and then we live it out, and we're going to believe it. We're going to have faith, and then our feelings follow our faith. But unfortunately, this way of thinking doesn't really realize what we feel and what God is telling us through our feelings. See what you're feeling. Spend time knowing your emotions, feel your emotions another symptom is is dying to the wrong things dying to the wrong things an old christian leader said the glory of god is a human being fully alive and it is true at the same time that jesus said if anyone wants to follow me let him deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me Sadly, people have misinterpreted this verse to say the more miserable you are, the more you suffer, then the more God loves you. But Jesus doesn't want us to die to every single thing. Yes, we die to the sinful parts such as defensiveness, detachment from others, arrogance, hypocrisy, stubbornness, judgmentalism, a lack of vulnerability and the obvious sins like murdering and lying. We die to those sins, but we don't die to the good things in our lives, to the healthy desires and pleasures of life, to friendship, to joy, to art, music, beauty, recreation, laughter and nature. We don't die to these things. God plants these desires within our hearts so we could nurture and enjoy these things, these desires and passions could be invitations from God, gifts from Him, so we could enjoy the world that He has given us. And sadly, some of us, because we feel that we have to die to everything, we feel guilty when we unwrap these presents. Maybe you you have been asked, somebody asks you, tell me about your wishes, hopes, and dreams. A Christian asks you this, and you're just speechless because you think, isn't my only wish dream and hopes to serve Jesus. And while that is a big hope that we have, God never tells us to annihilate ourselves. Instead, God wants us to be more ourselves. He wants us to be our truer selves, the people he created us to be. He wants us to blossom, accept your likes, and stop killing things that you don't need to kill. Number four denying the impact of the past on the present. In Christ, yes, our sins have been wiped away. The old is gone. The new is here. Yes, it's a miracle that our sins have been wiped, that we have a new identity, a new future, a new life. It's great news, but the past could still influence you. Your life choices, the choices that you have done, your actions, they still have an effect. And sometimes to move forward, You need to deal with the past. You need to understand the past and just accept it. Because if you don't, those strongholds can prevent you from loving yourselves and others as God has designed. Another symptom, number five, is dividing life into secular and sacred compartments. And this one is a very important and common one that I've seen. People tend to compartmentalize their lives, live double lives. Here's a story about Frank and maybe you could relate. Frank attends church. He sings about God's love. On the way home, he pronounces death penalty over another driver. For Frank, Sunday church is for God. Monday to Saturday is for work. Here's another example. Jane yells, at, Jane yells at her husband. She tells him that he is not a good leader for the children. He always walks away deflated and crushed. She walks away with the belief that she has fought valiantly in God's name. But she doesn't allow God to really help her with her relationship with her husband. Ken has a disciplined devotional time with God each day before going to work, but then does not think of God's presence with him all through the day at work or when he returns home to his wife and children. He only thinks about God when he wakes up. Judith cries during songs about the love and grace of God at her church, but she regularly complains and blames others for the difficulties and trials in her life. It is so easy to compartmentalize God. So easy determining, okay, these are just Christian activities that I need to check off. And these usually consist of going to church, uh, having these spiritual disciplines. But the truth is that God should be involved in every aspect of our lives. And how we navigate marriage and how we discipline our children and how we spend our money and time, and how we enjoy recreation and even how we study for exams. According to some studies, one of the greatest scandals within the church is that, the, is that most Christians are, that are, Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as pleasurable, hedonistic, materialistic, self-centered, and even sexually immoral As the world in general. The statistics hurt. Ron Sider in his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, summarizes the level of our compartmentalization. Whether the issue is marriage and sexuality or money and care for the poor, Christians today are living scandalously unbiblical lives. The data suggests that in many crucial areas, Christians are not living any differently from their unbelieving neighbors. You don't need statistics to know how true this is. And this is part of the reason why people drop out of the church. There's no difference between those in the church and those outside of the church. When we compartmentalize our life, we miss out on the genuine joy of life with Jesus Christ, the life that he has promised. Maybe you're suffering in a particular area because you haven't given that area to God. Number six, doing for God instead of being with God. In America, we value productivity and getting things done Praying and enjoying God for no other reason than just to delight in Him seems crazy. We think there is so much to be done. Too many people are lost. The world is in deep trouble. We need to preach the good news of Jesus. Just being in God's presence? No way. That's a luxury. As I was growing up in my Christian faith, I heard about monks, Christian monks who lived in monasteries. Just praying and spending time in the word of God. And I really wondered if they were Christians since they were not part of the real world. But to be honest, they, they were enjoying God's presence. We have these biases. We think that doing lots of work for God is a sure sign of a growing spirituality. That it's all up to us to change this world. And that we're never going to finish finish in this lifetime and that God cannot move unless we pray and that we are responsible for sharing Christ all the time to everyone otherwise people are going to hell and that things will fall apart if you don't persevere and hold things together are these things wrong not necessarily but work for God that does not come from a nourished deep Interior, interior life with God will eventually be contaminated by other things such as ego, power, needing approval of, and, of others and, and buying into the wrong ideas of success and the mistaken belief that we can't fail. We do things if we don't have a relationship with God we do things for the wrong reasons. And then we become human doings instead of human beings. We cannot give what we do not possess. Doing for God in a a way that reflects our relationship with God is the only pathway to a pure heart and the right way to see God number seven spiritualizing away conflict we don't like conflict but conflict is everywhere it's in school it's at home it's at our workplaces it happens in marriages with our parents with friends but unfortunately it's very common when conflict arises that christians just sweep the conflict under the rug and just follow jesus That is why there are so many instances of of unresolved conflicts within churches, we just put it to the side. I've done it, and it can create damage. Instead of dealing with the conflict, we say one thing to people's faces and then another behind their backs. We make promises that we have no intentions of keeping. Then we... Blame, attack, give people the silent treatment. Become sarcastic, give in because we are afraid of not being liked. Leak our anger through tweets or social media. Tell only half the truth because we can't bear to hurt a friend's feeling. Say yes when we actually mean no. Avoid and withdraw and cut off. We also find a a person that we could just vent to and share our anxiety. And while some of these in a good context can be okay. Jesus teaches us that healthy Christians do not avoid conflict. Jesus' life was full of conflict. He regularly confronted conflict. He always had conflict with religious leaders, with the crowds, with the disciples, and even his own family. Out of a desire to bring true peace, Jesus disrupted the false peace all around him. He refused to spiritualize conflict avoidance. Number eight, covering our brokenness, weakness, and failure. There's a pressure that we have to present an image that is strong and spiritually together. We feel guilty for not measuring up, for not making the grade, we forget that none of us are perfect. We forget that we are all sinners. We forget that David, one of God's most beloved friends, committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. That is part of David's story. This colossal failure was part of king's, this king's story. It's part of David's story. And everyone would know about it. Another man, Paul, we've spoken about him. He he failed. He persecuted Christians and he was broken. The Bible does not ignore the flaws and weaknesses of its heroes. Moses was a murderer. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. Peter rebuked God. Noah got drunk. Jonah was a racist. Jacob was a liar. John Mark deserted Paul. Elijah burned out. Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. Thomas doubted. Moses had a temper. Timothy had ulcers. And all these people send the same message. That every human being on earth, regardless of their gifts and strengths, is weak, vulnerable, and dependent on God and others. You might look at people who you admire, whether it's in the arts or sports or leadership, politics, business, academics, parenting, or the church. And you wonder if they have escaped the brokenness that plagues the rest of us. But they haven't. We are all flawed and broken. There are no exceptions. Number nine, living without limits. You might think good Christians constantly give and tend to the needs of others. Could good Christians don't say no to opportunities to help or to request for help because they, they would be selfish. Some Christians are selfish. They believe in God and Jesus Christ, but live their lives as if God does not exist. They don't care or think about loving and serving others outside of their friends and families. That's a tragedy. But there are a lot of Christians who carry guilt for never doing enough. They say, I spent hours on the phone listening to him and it still felt like it wasn't enough. It makes me want to run away. This guilt often leads to discouragement. But we need to understand that we have limits. That we are human. That we are not God. We cannot serve everyone who is in need. Jesus modeled this for us as a human being. Jesus didn't heal every person in Palestine. He didn't raise every dead person. He didn't feed all the hungry beggars or set up job development centers for the poor of Jerusalem. He didn't do that. And we shouldn't feel like we have to. We shouldn't guilt our trip, guilt trip ourselves. This causes us to feel frantic, exhausted, overloaded, and, and hurried. You need to love yourself to love others, recognize your limits. It's good to have self-care. Self-care is taking care of yourself, as the name implies, it's, and it's not selfish. Because when you care for yourself, that's when you could truly care for others. And the last symptom of unhealthy emotional spirituality, judging other people's spiritual journey. One Christian monk said, you must die to your neighbor and never judge them in any way whatsoever. If you are occupied with your own faults, you have no time to see those of your neighbor. You know, you might think that you have the responsibility to always correct people who are in sin. I felt that way, and therefore, sometimes I I've, I've felt guilty if I see something questionable and I didn't point it out. This was especially true in high school. We feel like we have to fix the problems of others. We think we got it. We could take over. If we take over, all the problems would be solved. We think we are right and others are not. And sadly, it then becomes an us versus them type of thing you know who always did this type of thing in jesus day the pharisees did and they thought that the sinners tax collectors and prostitutes were inferior to them and yet jesus came to the sinners to the tax collectors and to the prostitutes it's unfortunate that we turn our differences into moral superiority or virtues we judge people for their music. We judge people for dressing up or dressing down, for the movies they watch, the games they play, the cars they buy. We, we say those artists and musicians, they're so flaky. We say those scholars, they're so cerebral. They're, they're cold and heartless. Men are idiots. They're like kids. Women are overly sensitive and emotional. The rich are self-indulgent and selfish. The poor are lazy. And we also talk about other churches, other types of churches, denominations, Presbyterians, they're too structured. Pentecostals, they lack structure. Episcopalians, they have candles and written prayers. The Catholics, they have their their view on the Lord's Supper. The Orthodox Christians have their strange culture and love for icons. And, And I say, let others be others. Of course, if there is sin, we don't agree and affirm their sin. But we should try to help others as much as we can. If they have different expressions, and it's just different expressions. It's not a matter of like foundational things. Let them express their faith. And moreover, focus on your own log that's in your own eye. Jesus said, take your log out first. See your own sin first. Deal with that first before you try to help a brother. It is very likely that you have some of these symptoms. I have spent time on this today because I think it is important to identify our emotional unhealthiness. We need healing on our emotional side. Spend time this week thinking about the areas where you need to heal. And here are some tips. Talk about it with someone. Pray about it. Write it down. Make a plan to grow. Read books, He listen to podcasts, listen to psychologists, therapists, and even talk to people within the church. I am here to help, Elida's here to help, there are people within the church to help, just to listen to you unfold and develop your emotions. But, as we close, let us all pray. Amen. Heavenly Father. When I think about this sermon, the only thing I can say is, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Thank you that I stand before you in the righteousness of Jesus in his perfect record and performance, not my own. I ask that you would not simply heal the symptoms of what is not right in my life, but that you would surgically remove all that is in me that does not belong to you. As I think about this sermon, Lord, I pray that you may pour light over the things that are hidden. May I see clearly that you are holding me that you are with me. In Jesus' name, amen.